making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and let me invite you to join me there once again in Matthew's Gospel, where we pick up our series this morning, now in the 18th chapter. So Matthew chapter 18, and we'll read verses 1 through 20. At that time, Jesus, excuse me, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Father, speak to us and enable us to understand what you have spoken in these words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is asked this question by his disciples in verse 1, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And if we compare notes with with Mark and Luke, we find that the disciples' question here in verse 1 did not come from a good place. It came rather out of their pride. They had been discussing says Mark, even arguing, Luke tells us, about which of them might be the greatest. And so how is Jesus going to answer these proud men? 
Well, there's a little boy nearby, maybe playing ball in the street out the window, or maybe he lives in the house in which Jesus and his disciples are staying at this part of their journeys. And Jesus calls the boy forward in verse 2, and he places him in front of these proud men, and he says to them, not only to be great in the kingdom of heaven, verse 4, but even to enter it, verse 3, you must become like this humble little boy. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is calling these men, and he's calling us as well, to humility, to humble oneself as a child. But what does it mean to humble oneself as a child? Well, it's often said that what Jesus means is that we should imitate the childlike attribute of humility, the humble bearing that children have. And that may be what Jesus has in mind, that we should imitate children's humble bearing and caring of themselves. But the commentator R.T. France contends, and I think he may be right, he contends that Jesus is not pointing to any supposedly characteristic quality of children, but rather to their humble status, the humble status that children occupied in Jesus' day. Jesus, says France, is not pointing to any supposedly characteristic quality of children, but rather to the humble status that characterized children in Jesus' day. In other words, says France, it's not that children are usually quite humble in their attitudes and that we should imitate their humility. No, no, he says it's not that this is a supposed humble character trait of children that Jesus is putting forward as an example, but rather, says France, it's the humble status of children that Jesus calls us to adopt as our own. Children, France points out, occupied a very low station in ancient Jewish society, in the culture in which this discussion happens. And as such, France contends, what Jesus is saying here is that his disciples, and any of us for that matter, must come to accept as our own such a low status in society. Whether we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven or be great in the kingdom of heaven, we must accept this low station. Jesus is calling in verse 3, says France, for, quote, a radical reorientation from the mentality of the rat race to an acceptance of insignificance. And by the rat race, France is referring back, I think, to the disciples' argument, remember, about which of them is going to be highest on the totem pole. Jesus is calling for a radical reorientation from that sort of mentality to an acceptance of insignificance. That's what is required if we want to be great in or even to enter into the kingdom of heaven, an acceptance of insignificance, an acceptance of a low status and station. This sort of humility is prerequisite, Jesus says in verse 3, first of all, for entry into God's kingdom. But why? Why do we need to be humble like this in order to enter into God's kingdom? Well, it's not that humility earns salvation. There's nothing we can do. There's no attribute that we can take on that would earn salvation. It's not that humility earns 
salvation from our sins and eternal life in heaven, but rather humility is required in order to enter the kingdom of heaven because if we are proud, if we think that we are somebody, if our mind is on our greatness, are we really going to come before God as beggars asking him to save us? The door into God's kingdom, said Samuel Rutherford, is a low door. You can't get through it with your head held high. You must stoop, says Rutherford, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or as Jesus puts it here, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be humble to accept that you need saving. And then in verse 4, humility is also what makes someone truly great in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in God's kingdom isn't attained by being in charge, by having authority, by being behind the pulpit, by being successful, and so on. Greatness isn't attained in God's kingdom by whatever qualities these disciples were arguing about that they thought would make one or other of them greater. Greatness is attained, Jesus says, by accepting our humble, childlike status, by being last of all and servant of all, as Mark records that Jesus also said on this occasion. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I wonder if this is you. Are you content to be a child? Are you content to be lowly and insignificant in the eyes of the world or even in the eyes of others around you? Are you truly humble? It's a vital question to ponder. And am I humble before the Lord? Am I willing to bow low and to admit my neediness? It's a vital question because truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But then in verse 5, Jesus segues from our acceptance of our own humble, childlike status to our treatment of others who have accepted that status, our treatment of others who admit that they are but children, really. The commentators agree that it's not those who are children in age that Jesus is referring to in verse 5, and when he speaks of little ones as the passage goes on, he's rather now speaking to those who are children in attitude. He refers in verse 5 to whoever receives one such child, where such probably refers back to the childlike person that he's been describing in verses 3 and 4. And so Jesus is, is going to talk now about how we treat people who are humble in God's sight, how we treat people who have admitted their need for God's help, how we treat God's children, God's people, how we treat believers in Christ. And he says in verse 5 that if we receive one of these people, that if we receive a true Christian, in other words, then we receive him. That's what Jesus says. Whoever receives one such child, one of my children, in other words, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And that's both exciting and daunting. It's exciting because when you host a missionary in Jesus' name, 
when you encourage a fellow believer in Jesus' name, when you teach a Sunday school class for Jesus' sake, when you pray together with other believers in his name, when you give to the persecuted church in his name, to the extent that you did it to one of Jesus' brothers or sisters, you did it to him, he says in Matthew 25. And so it's exciting to think, I can serve Jesus by serving his people. What a blessing. But it's also daunting what we read here in verse 5 because of what's on the other side of the coin. It's true, if you receive one such child in Jesus' name, you receive him. But the reverse of that is that if you don't receive someone who is his child, then you don't receive him. If you turn his people away, Jesus says specifically in Matthew 25, you turn him away. And what if you cause one of his people one of his little ones, one of his humble believers to stumble. If you lure one of Jesus' people into sin, the consequences in verse 6 are grave indeed. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, I confess that I don't know how serious a stumbling knock block needs to be or how heinous the sin that it leads to needs to be before it's classified under this category in Matthew 18, 6 of stumbling one of Jesus' little ones. I also confess that even with what Jesus says here, surely there's the possibility of forgiveness if the person who has laid the stumbling block will repent and turn to Christ, 1 John one seven, And yet, be those things as they may, this is serious business. Whoever causes one of these little ones, one of my people, one of my children, to stumble, one of these little ones who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And again, we need to ponder these things for ourselves. Am I receiving other believers? Or am I stumbling them? Think about that in your relationship to people in the pews with you today and others who are part of this church family. Think about that question. Am I receiving other believers or stumbling them in terms of your Christian relationship within your home or your wider family? Think about it in terms of Christian friendships you have at school or at work or in your neighborhood or wherever it may be. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's serious. The way you treat God's children is serious. And then Jesus segues again in verse 8. He segued already from our acceptance of our own humble, childlike status in verses 3 and 4 to our treatment of others who have accepted that status, including a warning against stumbling them. And now he segues again briefly from the warning about stumbling others to a warning about stumbling ourselves in verses 8 and 9. 
If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. This is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? Jesus is, of course, gentle and meek and mild, but he's also very clear about the realities of our sin. Now, what's he saying here? I don't think Jesus is advocating literal bodily mutilation in order to avoid sin and hell. I think he's speaking metaphorically, as he often does. I think he's speaking metaphorically here, and yet speaking earnestly here about our need to do whatever it takes to leave off sinning. To do whatever it takes to be rid of sin and to stay clear of it. And I wonder if you're willing to do that. I wonder if you're willing metaphorically to cut off your hand, to cut off your foot, to pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. I wonder if you're serious about quitting your besetting sins. I wonder if you realize that unrepentant sin, that being content to remain in your sin and not cut off your hand will land you, verse 9, in the fiery hell. Are you willing, trusting Christ as your Savior, to do whatever it takes to rid yourself of your sins? Now, what are some modern examples that we could give of doing whatever it takes to rid ourselves of our sin? Let me just give a few. There are many that we could give, but let me give a few. If your cell phone is giving opportunity to a pornography habit, it would be better for you to take it out of your pocket and throw it into the Ohio River than for you to continue sinning your way to hell. If driving down that particular street is giving you opportunity to be bitterly jealous of your neighbor and what he owns, it would be better for you to go the long way to work for the rest of your days than to covet your way into the lake of fire. If working in your particular field or at your particular workplace gives opportunity for a habit of dishonesty, or for the patent neglect of your family, or for the neglect of the things of God, it would be better for you to quit your job than to go on sinning your way to perdition. And there are many other examples that could be given here of cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, gouging out your eye, so to speak, getting rid of whatever you must get rid of in order to be rid of your sins. Now, it's not that quitting your sins, that changing your actions is what saves you, is what keeps you from hell. We lay hold of the salvation purchased by Jesus by repentance, which is a changing of our hearts, and by faith in Jesus to save us from hell. But if you're content to go on in your sins... If you don't want to cut off a hand and gouge out an eye, if you're content to just keep living how you're living, it will become clear eventually that you've never had that change of heart that we call repentance and that you've never trusted this Jesus who saves his people from their sins. 
Nor is it that if we continue our sins, that if we refuse to cut off the offending hand, we will lose our salvation. Rather, it's that if we're content to go in our sins, there comes a point in which we prove that we were never saved to begin with, that we never belonged to Christ to begin with. So this is serious business in verses 8 and 9. It's not saying that Christians never struggle with sin. But there is a difference between struggling with sin and making peace with it. Right? If an armed man comes into your house and seeks to rob you, you can struggle with him and maybe you'll lose sometimes and maybe you'll win sometimes, but you're struggling. That's altogether different than just opening the door and letting him take what he wants, right? And there's a difference between struggling with sin and just opening the door and letting it go on unchecked in your life. And so if you have a besetting sin, don't neglect to deal with it, Jesus says. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life, eternal life, crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Now, Jesus has segued from how we treat His people and making sure we don't stumble His people to making sure we don't stumble ourselves. But now in verse 10, He returns to the theme of how we should treat His people, of how we should treat His little ones. He's already urged us, verse 5, to receive them. And He's urged us, verse 6, not to stumble them. And now He wants us in verse 10 not to despise them. Not to despise His little ones. And he warns us not to despise them by giving this reminder that the angels are watching and that these angels will report back to God as to how they see us treating his people. See, verse 10, that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, there are angels keeping watch over God's people. Do you believe that? We can't see them, but there are angels keeping watch over God's people, which is encouraging if you are among those people, if you belong to Christ today. It's encouraging to know God has these servants who are watching out for me and for us. But it's also a warning to know that there are angels watching out for God's people is a warning against mistreating those people against despising them or despising one of them because the angels are watching what you do and these angels who are watching what you do continually see the face of the Father. They continually report into His presence. And so let me ask you, are there any of God's people that you despise? Is there some fellow Christian that you've been consumed with hatred toward? Someone that you just can't, Stand. Might be someone in this room. It might be someone who's sitting in another church building this morning. Maybe someone who used to sit in this room. Maybe someone who normally sits in this room but isn't here today. Maybe someone in your family who's a believer in Jesus, but you have come to despise them. Beware. Beware. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of God's children. For I say to you, that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
Now, having warned us about stumbling his people and about stumbling ourselves, Jesus begins in verse 11 to describe the Father's heart for rescuing his stumbled disciples. The Father's heart for rescuing Christians who have gone astray, beginning in verse 11. Now, the Father has a heart also for rescuing those who aren't yet Christians and who are astray. But in spite of the language of lostness in verse 11, the larger context here of God's care for his little ones and of what follows beginning in verse 15 about how we hold accountable and seek to rescue our brothers, the larger context here, I believe, reveals that this passage in verses 11 and following is referring specifically to God's search and rescue mission for straying believers. For how God rescues straying Christians. Which means that genuine believers do sometimes stray. Right? If the Bible has to talk about how to rescue or how God wants to rescue and how God does rescue his straying people, then that means that believers do sometimes stray. And while the straying here could refer to a person just slipping away from the flock, losing connection with the family of God, with the church. It can also be straying in various other kinds of ways, straying into various other kinds of sins, even while someone remains weakly in the pews. Straying refers to any kind of grievous sin, leaving the church, gossip, drunkenness, slander, adultery, pornography addiction, neglecting the family of God, dishonesty in business, mistreatment of parents, and on and on we could go. And the good news of this passage is that God doesn't write off his children when they go astray. God doesn't write off his children when they stumble, when they backslide. The Son of Man, verse 11, came to save such people. And the Father is not willing, verse 14, that any of these people, that any of his little ones, that any of those who have humbled themselves before him, that any of his believing people, in other words, God is not willing, verse 14, that any of them perish. He's not willing that his sheep, verses 12 and 13, should remain astray, that his people should remain in their stumbling. And the parable of his seeking them out is beautiful, is it not? There in verses 12 and 13. What do you think, Jesus says, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, he does not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search, or does he not, excuse me, leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. This is the Father's heart for his lost sheep. Every individual sheep is important. Every individual little one is valuable. It's not just that God is content that we are all here today, but if there is someone missing, someone missing not because they're sick or because uh, they're just having a bad day, but they're straying, they're wandering away from God and His flock. Or if there's someone who's sitting here today who's with the flock, but you're straying in your heart, you're straying in your actions. God is not content to go, well, there's all these other people who are still doing right. There's all these other people who still love me. There's all these other people who are still where they're supposed to be spiritually and growing like they're supposed to be. No, Every individual little one, every individual sheep is valuable to God. And therefore, when any individual sheep goes astray, when any of his people goes astray, God goes in search of that straying sheep. 
He goes on search and rescue, and he rejoices when the straying lamb is brought home. And we should rejoice too. We should have a heart for restoring backslidden disciples too. And in Jesus, indeed, Jesus commands us to be involved in verses 15 and following in that search and rescue mission. If your brother, if your fellow Christian sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, and so on. This is a description of how God goes about his search and rescue mission, the one that's so beautifully pictured in verses 12 and 13. How does God do it? By means of his people following the process that's outlined here. If there's a straying sheep, you go and you talk to him and you try to win him over, right? And then you proceed through this process of continuing to go and talk to him and trying to win him over. Verses 15 through 17 describe how in everyday life the parable of verses 12 and 13 plays itself out. Now, these words about going to your brother and showing him his fault and so on, these words are spoken, remember, to the twelve disciples. But I don't believe that these instructions were incumbent only on the twelve, but upon all of Jesus' followers and upon all local churches ever since. Every local church in every age should be following through on the instructions in verses 15 through 17 here. And every believer in the local church has a part to play in this. Any one of us might need to do what Jesus enjoins there in verse 15. Any one of us might need, if we see someone stumbling, a fellow brother in Christ, a fellow sister in Christ stumbling, if we see one of them spiritually straying, if we see them involved in some sin, any one of us might be the one that God is calling to go to them and try to talk them out of that and to try to urge them from the word of God to repentance and restoration. Any one of us might do that. And really, this should be happening quite often in the context of the local church because we're all sinning quite often. The goal is not to nitpick every little thing, but the goal is to provide genuine accountability when a sheep has gone astray. And many times, this first step in verse 15 will also be the last step because when you go to your brother and plead with him about his sins and show him uh, from the scriptures that he should repent and return to the Lord, he will listen or she will listen. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But sometimes the process will have to continue. Sometimes the person in question won't listen. They won't repent at this first step and you'll have to go on to the next step. If he does not listen to you, verse 16, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you go privately, one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, you take one or two others with you. You go in a group of two or three. And in our church polity, we ask that you involve the elders at this second stage. But what if you've done that and the person still won't repent? What if you've gone with one or two others and they still won't repent? What if they don't Listen even to the urging of this smaller group. Well, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. And many of you have seen us do this, bringing some straying individual 
to the attention of the larger church body. It's painful, but it must be done. And so we bring them to your attention, asking you to pray for and encourage their repentance and restoration. And let me remind you, that is the goal, repentance and restoration. The goal of this is not shaming that person. The goal is not merely membership housekeeping to make sure that our roles are right. When we go to someone in private or with a small group, or if we have to bring the situation to the attention of the church at large, the goal, verse 13, is that we might find the straying sheep and rejoice over their rescue. The goal, verse 15, is that we might win our erring brother. And sometimes in an effort to win them, Jesus says, we have to take the severe measure of bringing them to the attention, not just of one or two other brothers, but to the church, verse 17. And what if they won't repent even then? What if we patiently work through these first three steps and we still can't win the person over? They still won't repent. Well, there comes a point, Jesus says, when you have to then presume that person to be an unbeliever. I think that's what he means when he says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentiles and tax collectors are synonymous here for those who are outside of the faith, for those who don't know God, for those who are not his people. And so what Jesus is saying is that if a church faithfully works through the process outlined in verses 15 through 17, and if the straying sheep still won't come back, if the erring church member still won't repent of his sin, then you have to consider that person an unbeliever. You have to consider them as a Gentile and a tax collector. That doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. Jesus loses none of his true sheep. But what it means is that though they may have worn sheep's clothing for a while, their unwillingness to repent proved they were never really one of Christ's sheep. They were never really one of his humble little ones, never truly a believer. As we said in connection with verses 8 and 9, we must say again here that if we are content to go on in our sins, there comes a point when we prove that we were never saved to begin with. And the end of this process in verse 17 is that point. If a person has been lovingly and patiently held accountable, first by an individual brother or sister, then by a group of two or three, then by the church at large, and they still don't repent, then you now have to conclude them, verse 17b, to have never actually been a true believer. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, hear this well. Jesus loves Gentiles and tax collectors. Jesus rubs shoulders with them. Jesus ministered to them in his earthly ministry, and we should do the same. The goal of treating someone as a Gentile and a tax collector is not to cut them out of our lives. It's not to bar them from attending church. It's rather in keeping with the heartbeat of Jesus for Gentiles and for tax collectors. The goal is to continue to have these people in our lives, to invite them to our services, to continue ministering to them, but now to minister to them with an evangelistic thrust, to be involved in their lives. In other words, no longer as fellow church members, as fellow believers, but reaching out to someone whom you want to see come to be saved. 
someone whom you want to see come to know the Lord. You're recognizing they don't know the Lord. Their life proves that they don't know the Lord, but I want them to come to know the Lord, so I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to minister to them. I'm just going to minister to them like I would minister to any other friend who doesn't know the Lord. So there's this process in verses 15 through 17 where we are to attempt the search and rescue of fellow believers or professing believers seeking to bring them back into the fold. But it can end if there's no repentance with the person in question no longer being considered a believer and thus no longer being a church member. And we must follow through on this process because it's commanded by Jesus for the good of souls. And I do remind you that. It's for the good of souls. It's not a housekeeping matter only, a membership matter only. It's for the good of souls that people who are believers would be brought to repentance for their sins and that people who aren't believers would come to see it so that they don't just walk blindly over the cliff edge of hell never having realized that they were not saved. And then notice in verse 18 that if we do follow through in this process, and of course if we do it rightly, then whatever verdict we come to, verse 18, is the verdict that has already been passed in heaven. Listen to verse 18, noticing the verb tenses. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So if you bind someone to the membership of the church, having done this the right way, or if you loose them from the membership of the church, having done this the right way, they, you can be sure that they will have been already bound or already loosed in heaven. If we follow through in this process and do it rightly, then whatever verdict we come to is the verdict that's already been ratified in heaven. Now, you may remember this phraseology of binding and loosing there in verse 18 is the same phraseology that Jesus used last Sunday back in chapter 16, verse 19, when he told Peter that he would give him the keys of the kingdom. And the way Jesus uses this phraseology of binding and loosing here is how we know that one of the keys of the kingdom, one of the keys, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, by which the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and closed to unbelievers, this is how we know that one of those Matthew 16 keys is this process that Jesus describes in verse 18 or excuse me, verses 15 through 18, that we've come to call church discipline. The keys that Jesus talks about back in chapter 16 have to do with binding and loosing that which has already been bound and loosed in heaven. And here we learn that this binding and loosing is the binding and loosing people to and from membership in Christ's church. This process is one of the keys by which the kingdom of heaven is open to, un to believers and closed to unbelievers. And so we must take it seriously. We must use the key. And we must use it lovingly and patiently and exactly after the manner in which Jesus here instructs us to use it. And if we do that, verse 18, we'll reach the same verdict that has already been confirmed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then Jesus segues once more. This time he segues from our coming to a verdict that has already been confirmed in heaven to making requests in verses 19 and 20 that we would like to be confirmed in heaven. And Jesus says that if two or three of his people agree 
on such requests, it shall be done for them by his Father who is in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Aren't those a wonderful couple of verses? Jesus promises here that prayer agreed upon by believers will be answered. And he promises that when believers gather together, even in twos or threes, he will be with them. Which is true in general, of course, whenever we gather in two or threes in his name. But which promise he makes specifically here in the context of corporate prayer. And I hope that you will want, therefore, to pray with other believers. What Jesus says in verse 20 is true in general. That where two or three have gathered in his name, he is there in their midst. But he mentions this promise specifically after having told us that God will answer agreed upon prayer. And I say again, I hope that makes you want to pray with other believers. Maybe to be a part of our prayer meeting on Sundays at 9 a.m. If two, or th- if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And before we finish, we should just notice that Jesus' promise here concerning the prayers of his gathered people comes specifically at the end of this section in which he has taught us about how to search for and rescue straying sheep, about how to search for and rescue stumbling church members, about the restoration of backsliding believers. And so surely we should pray especially for that. If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven.